All right. So another story I want to tell you about Mike Lindell is that you always see him with a cross on. First time I ever saw him it was in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast, he had a big cross on. He is a Christian, and it's great because he's not afraid of his faith. And one of the other things you can get beyond the 100 products that he has, like the slippers that I've talked about, or the small pillows for your back if you're sitting too much in a chair, is you can get some religious pillows. Now, here's one. This has to do with Noah, Noah and the Ark. And on the backside, they have stories about Noah and the Ark. Now, some people may be offended by that because they think it's politically incorrect to talk about your faith or politically incorrect to call yourself a Christian. I think it's terrific in this day because the world has gone to hell, and we all know that. And it's good to know that even if you have grandchildren, you have young children, you want to get their morals and their values in order, you can always, and it's not just Noah that Mike Lindell is pushing. He's pushing all the biblical stories on these small pillows for kids. So if you're interested in having your kids introduced to some values and some Christian values and Christian beliefs and the stories in the Bible, go ahead and order any of these biblical pillows for Mike Lindell. Now, how do you get them? You get them by the promo code CDM. That's us. So just put in promo code CDM and you can get a biblical pillow for your grandchildren or your young children. And now let's get to our guests. So today in American Conversations, we have Danny Bulford, who's in Canada, in Ottawa. He was uh, he he is a, was a sniper uh, on the with the uh, law enforcement. Is that is that correct? How I say that, Danny? It was law enforcement, or yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I I was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for roughly fifteen years. In the last eight years, I spent as a full time sniper observer on our emergency response team based out of Ottawa. So that would be uh, emergent in the RCMP ERT is the equivalent of SWAT in the United States. And um, it's just a different name. And just- we do a lot of here and because we're in Ottawa in the national capital, we do a lot of uh, counter sniper observer mm-hmm. work, like similar to what the counter snipers for the U S secret service would do for POTUS. Right. Yeah, we do yeah. a lot of that same type of work here in Ottawa for the PM, for the prime minister and other visiting dignitaries. So Danny, you and I had a long conversation a couple of weeks ago. I want to thank you for doing this interview. Um, your name came up and you were very public. Uh, you, we did, I didn't know about you uh, mm-hmm. in October of 2021, but you certainly became public during the truckers convoy uh, across Canada and into Ottawa because you uh, had spoken out before the convoy arrived in Ottawa. You stood mm-hmm. with them. You were one of the negotiators with the police um, on behalf of the truckers working with the police at that point in time because you had left. Let's get some background uh, of your story and how you spoke out against the mandates in Canada starting in October. Okay, well, for the majority of 2020, I wasn't paying attention to the COVID narrative. I was, my work was mostly uninterrupted. Um, we, we, we were working in small groups and we had adjusted our schedule, but beyond that, um, not much had changed. Mm-hmm. And in my off time, I was focused on my own personal projects and I haven't paid attention to mainstream media for a number of years. As a result of being a police officer, you quite often you feel targeted by them. So I just, had cut that out of my life. Mm -hmm. And 
Then early 2021, my wife started to bring some things to my attention that were of concern to her regarding um, where the specific to the new technology around mRNA. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what got me started on doing my own open source investigation into the, the official narrative regarding COVID and then discovering the counter narrative regarding COVID. And so I tried to take uh, the approach as, uh, an un as unbiased as I could uh, as an objective investigator, like I did in the first half of my career, where mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're, there's always two sides of the story and usually right. where the, tr the, the truth is usually where the overlap happens in the middle. That's right. So I did, I, I visited all of the public health, uh, like the official public health websites and um, paid attention to what the mainstream narrative was saying. And then I contrasted it to what, you know, some of the big groups that have become well known, like in the United States, America Frontline Doctors, uh, the FLCCC, and then mm -hmm. the equivalent of that in Canada, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and um, the bird group, like uh, Tess Lowry's group in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to analyze the evidence like you would as an investigator, right? So, and I found the three themes that were constantly coming up with the official narrative was a lot of general vague statements without ever providing detailed evidence other than beyond just what the pharmaceutical companies provided themselves. And a lot of that was very minimal for quite a while. Um, so that was the first theme. Second theme was of verbal condescending attacks on any, any, anyone who questioned the narrative, including like, high profile qualified doctors and scientists. Mm -hmm. And then the third theme I noticed over and over again was the inappropriate analogy, you know, comparing the injection to, well, in my case, a set of body armor or a helmet or a seatbelt. And I thought that was ridiculous because those are things you wear on the outside of your body. They've been around for a long time and you can take them off. It's not something that you get injected, which once it's in there, there's no going back. So at what point in time was it mandated to get the vaccinations for jobs in Canada? Is that, well, is that early 2021 or is that a little bit into? No, they, they announced that. I think they announced it as early as late August, like uh, around August 23rd or so. Like one of the last weeks of August is when they first started making announcement that that, that, that was probably going to, I think actually, I think it was August 13th. Um, because I remember it was my, it was my daughter's birthday mm -hmm. and we heard that on the radio and, and, and specific to federal, I think the federal mandate in Canada for federal employees was the first one that was announced. And then quickly after that provinces followed suit and so did private business. And so we knew that it was coming, but then it took, it took a period of time to implement it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, while I was, I had already made up my mind by then that I wasn't going to take it. You know, um, if they had left it the choice, because the evidence was almost absent uh, from the official narrative, like like detailed and quality evidence. I couldn't I had a hard time finding any to really support your claim, their claims about it. And as early as July, we already had indications that it didn't provide or it didn't prevent infection. It didn't prevent transmission. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately I thought, okay, well, it's up to, it's up to each individual's 
risk assessment as to if they feel they're in a high risk category or not. I didn't feel like I was, um, you know, late thirties, uh, soon to be 40 fit, healthy, active. Um, and throughout my, uh, open source investigation of the, the contrasting narratives, I found that the counter narrative was providing a tremendous amount of high quality, uh, detailed information in the form of scientific studies and reviews of studies. And they were pointing towards the direction was there were safety concerns, you know, um, far it, more, it, so, far so, the, more the, so than previous um, vaccine products. Well, the, the narrative at that point in time from the people who were pro vaccination uh, was these are all safe and effective for everybody mm -hmm. and that yeah. any injury would be rare. And if you didn't take it, you'd die. Yes. Yeah. I mean, which, that, that was, you, which didn't you're, match you're going to get data. a severe case of COVID. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and then beyond that, so, and, and efficacy was also called into question. And we were already seeing like the initial reports of like, if you take this, the virus stops with you, you can't spread it. Well, we already knew before the mandates were even announced that that was not right. the case. Even our own prime minister, uh, prime minister Trudeau said that publicly in a video interview uh, as a press conference in Moncton, New Brunswick back in July, I think it might've been as early as maybe July 16th or so. Like mm -hmm. it was early to mid July. Uh, he himself even said that you can still, you can still spread the disease, even if you're double vaccinated. He just right. said, so it, it just point, makes it more difficult. Right. So th th then when they came out and said that it was mandated for the, for the federal employees, that's when you said, well, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. That's when I started to, <laughs> I already started to think like, mm, there's something not right here. And while I was investigating the vaccine safety and efficacy, I learned a lot about early treatment and how they were being not just suppressed and censored, but doctors were being attacked and vilified and even intimidated and having their licensing stripped away if they dare use it or mm -hmm. prescribe it. Mm -hmm. And so all of these, all of these things were just starting to, it was like a buildup of red flags and concerning, um, you know, well, it was, it was clear to me that the official narrative was behaving like a bully and a criminal. I mean, throughout my experience as an investigator, the person who just yells and screams at anyone who disagrees with them is a bully and typically the offender. You know, mm -hmm. if you were to compare it to like a domestic violence call, you respond to a call, you, the aggressor is amped up and yelling and screaming and is the one that is the danger and trying to yell over anyone else who says anything opposite of what they're saying. Whereas the person who is typically the credible witness is the one who's calm and will give you, uh, well, has a calm delivery and will give you great detail about what happened. Okay, so fast forward to October. So you 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 started speaking out in October. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was early October. Um, so the official mandate, I guess there was a big delay when I was trying to figure out what it was exactly I was going to do. And but that mm -hmm. also coincided with a federal election here in Canada. And so up to, I think it was September 20th, there was still some hope that we might have a change in government who would take a different approach. You know, the, the conservative party here was they were waffling, but the leader at the time was saying that he would support uh, freedom of choice. And so I thought, okay, well, 
as long as they leave it about freedom of choice, that's ultimately everyone's responsibility to make their own decision, what they think is best for them. But then, of course, that didn't happen. And so on October 6th, the official mandate was announced. And shortly thereafter, I began speaking out. And when did you when did you decide to leave your job? I it was right at the end of November. I decided to submit my official resignation. And um, that was I'd already been speaking out uh, a number of times and based on our uh, I was viol- I was knowingly violating the RCMP code of conduct by speaking out publicly un- unauthorized speaking out publicly against the government and against the RCMP and so I knew that there was only a matter of time until the discipline hammer came crashing down and it it would be very rare to be um, terminated normally uh, like you you know <laughs> There's a lot of people who've gotten into some serious trouble while employed as police officers within the RCMP, even convicted of crimes, and yet they kept their job and, and were, you know, never lost pay, like probably suspended with pay while, you know, awaiting trial. And, but there, so I already knew that there was a major departure from the norm by pushing anyone who didn't comply on to leave without pay. That was the, that was the, the threat. That was either you take this and you comply with our mandate or you're going to be put on non-disciplinary leave without pay, like, like such a thing. Okay, so, the, so, so, so then you, you, you figured out how you wanted to handle it at the time. Uh, yeah. and, and so you left and then, and then you continued to speak out. You didn't really come mm-hmm. on to sort of the stage, you know, outside of Canada uh, until the convoy rolled into town, uh, into Ottawa, but you were, were you were involved supporting the truckers, correct? Yes, yes, I was. Yeah. So my my official resignation was on December fifteenth, and then, you know, I was I was continuing as a, a spokesman for a, a group called Mounties for Freedom. You know, um, it's a a subgroup that formed out of a greater uh, a larger group called Police on Guard. So, police officers of my mindset that were opposed to mandates. And so in on January, I think it was the 25th, the Tuesday before the convoy landed in Ottawa, um, I received a phone call from a friend who was already uh, linked in to volunteering with, uh, it's called, the organization at the time was called Adopt a Trucker. And that was initially founded as a means to like help provide truckers the necessities of life like food shelter transportation once they arrived here in ottawa and so i received that phone call on the tuesday asking for help with uh, coordinating volunteer security i felt like well i have to you know um out of when every other profession failed to stand up on mass on the Mm -hmm. behalf of fundamental rights and freedoms you know for my family and people like me the truck, the truck drivers did. So I, I had to, I, so I couldn't was, say no. It was yeah. extraordinary to see them. We were taking footage as they were going across the country and coming into Ottawa and, and to see the people on the overpasses and on the highways, you know, and the show of support for these guys was truly something it was breathtaking. It was. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and it was, was a surprise. I, I, I honest to God thought that maybe Australia was going to stand up uh, because they had such severe lockdowns and they did. But really, when the truckers took off uh, and it became just a, an international story at that point in time, people people kept on saying, OK, we can do this. We well, can that, do this. That, that restored hope. Like for me, mm-hmm. 
I, I kept waiting for the United States to be the big to be the big push back because typically you are right like the united states well, of America but, has but a much we, more like we stand by the constitution and don't you dare step on it well um, we, we we thought we thought that that would be it would happen but it happened mm -hmm. so quickly to the acceptance in 2020 mm -hmm. and then people started to say okay how do we open you know shortly open up but it was only we're only going to open up if you get a shot mm -hmm. you know it, it, it was well you're shut down until you say it was any vax was the only answer well, that and was that the same here. It is the right. exact same here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when, um, so the following it, Wednesday, I, I, I went to the, my very first meeting and it was just a handful of people sitting around a kitchen table with like, you know, I don't know, hundreds of people to sift through as far as like who had volunteered. There had already been people volunteering their homes and, volunteering to drive shuttle and volunteering showers. Did you and see laundry. any pushback? Did you see any pushback at that point in time? Or was from, everybody just say we're we're gonna help? We're in. From from the police or from the volunteers? From the volunteers. Oh no, everyone was a hundred percent bought in because it was we were all in that mindset of like our country is going in an authoritarian direction. And th this is just like the most obvious egregious violation of mm -hmm. fundamental uh, freedoms. And so like, this has to work. This has to work to um, restore like that, that hope that Canada can remain a free country. And th that was the mindset. And so I arrived there, we started looking at how much needed to be done within about two days time. And I was like, Oh, man, like, this is a monumental task and we have two days to prepare for the right. landing of this you all giant became convoy. advanced in. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was chaotic that first, uh, that first week. Well, I would say even more like, let's say 10 days was just all out, like no sleep, 20 plus hour days, just go, 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 just trying to prepare. And then e even after, once the convoy landed, it was even more chaotic um for, but coming, for a number but coming of, us. Out of the, coming out of our pre previous conversation you said to me that there was a real joint effort by the police who were still in uniform mm -hmm. with your group yep. at the negotiating table because you you both both sides knew that you know one one crazy person could disrupt it and could yeah. hurt it the cops didn't want it you guys didn't want it you wanted it to be peaceful. You wanted it to be unity. You wanted to be heard by Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. No, I, my, well, our single greatest concern was shared with the police. And like we, we shared that same single uh, biggest concern was that a lone actor or a small group would infiltrate and instigate some kind of violent action or or do something, behave in a way or plant something that would bring discredit to the Freedom Convoy. And so we were working very closely with the police. The police had actually provided the plan ahead of time as to where trucks were supposed to enter into the city and stage from the various, uh, like basically from the cardinal points, like northeast, south and west. And then, uh, you know, I, I made contact as soon as I was kind of the dedicated security or volunteer security uh, coordinator, police liaison. I started reaching out to the different police uh, agencies that would normally manage a big event in Ottawa, like the RCMP, 
the Ottawa Police Service and the Parliamentary Protective Service. And I mean, that's that's what I did for the last eight years was work with these joint agencies on major events in downtown Ottawa. So I was in a unique position to have a, a good working knowledge of how that system operates. And so I, I had people that I already knew that were identified as contacts. Um, so Danny, what happened? I mean, because the mainstream press, you know, about two weeks into that, was basically saying that, you know, it was a negative story. I mean, mm -hmm. you were down there, you were on the ground. We mm -hmm. had our people that was, it was inside, <clears throat> pardon me, had gone across Ottawa and that were inside Ottawa. From your perspective as a Canadian, mm -hmm. what happened to the mainstream press? Because what you saw, what our guys saw on the ground, the footage that they gave us was different than what I was watching on the mainstream media here in the United States as, as well. I mean, on, on some stations, not, mm -hmm. not every single station, but you know, your mainstream media was giving it a negative spin. Oh yeah. No, they, they lie. They, they lied about the entire Why? thing. Who, who fed them that information? I mean, they had cameras, they were down there on the ground because yeah, I, we had footage of you know, your mainstream media and some of the people telling them, you know, you're lying, you're lying. Mm -hmm to the cameras and we, we actually had some of that footage what happened well i suspect that they were they were working to who's make, they sorry the mainstream media my apologies <clears throat> were it's no secret that the the major public broadcaster the cbc is heavily funded every year by the federal government and so it's it's been no secret for the entire time that the trudeau government has been in power that they've been in his pocket and they they never. They always report favorably on him and his government. So they even, they are the bullhorn. That so they they are the bullhorn for Trudeau's administration. Yeah, but it's not just them. Like um, CTV News, Global News, they're they're all and and some of the larger um, uh, like newspaper outlets as well. Mm -hmm. They are all uh, they all seem to be like part of that trusted news initiative mentality, right? Where they are going to report a narrative that fits the government's agenda, even right. if it is the complete opposite of what is truly happening on the ground. And that, okay. that is clearly what happened in Ottawa. Clearly right. anyone, anyone who saw what the media was reporting and contrasted that to the real world experience to down there at the convoy firsthand would have seen that clear. Um, it was the opposite of truth. What the media All was right. reporting was the opposite of truth. All right. So fast, fast forward to uh, the, the the truckers in Canada want to meet with Trudeau. They 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 actually have something they want to show him. They had they they wanted to have a face to face. It never happened. No. Trudeau comes out and and basically you know flips the switch, justifying what he's about about to announce based upon a false narrative that was on the ground at the time, because he used that you were just, you guys were disruptive. You guys were causing, you know, all kinds of trouble. And hence his decision to send in the guys on the horses. Mm -hmm. What was the behind the scenes conversation that you were having with your former mates at the time, who you had been negotiating with about, you know, having a collective uh, interest in maintaining peace. What happened behind the scenes? Well, Were they disgusted with, with Trudeau? Well, I would say when that occurred, mm -hmm. like the, the Emergencies Act was invoked, mm -hmm. there was definitely a decrease in communication 
and I mean, it's not all on the police. Part of that was myself as well, just being um, quite busy and not ha making enough time to connect with them on a daily basis. But the first two weeks, the communication was, was really good both ways. And that was with all the different police agencies I was dealing with. So the, the city. All right. Police, so then it changed. But, but, but yeah, it did. It did. did the talk. entire mentality or the entire um, atmosphere shifted in that third week after the emergencies act was invoked. I would say the, the communication level did diminish somewhat. But, but, what, but when they spoke to you, what did they say to you? Well, were they I disgusted? Made it, were they disgusted with Trudeau? <laughs> uh, none, of, none of them made any obvious reference to being disgusted with him. But they, there was some level of acknowledgement when I would call out the, the lies that was being spread by the government and the media and even the Ottawa police chief. There was some like acknowledgement that yeah, they, they knew that that was happening. And like one, one situation in particular was we were, be, it was um, a lot of rhetoric that we were holding the city hostage and we were like domestic terrorists and we were, you know, planning an insurrection, which was absolutely false. There was never any evidence of that whatsoever. That was never the intention. It was only about getting Manning shot. But, and then, um, but then they also started to like, it was like they were deliberately trying to provoke people within the convoy, like um, circulating messaging about how child and child protective services was going to become involved for people who had, who were staying downtown, you know, camping out, whether it was in a big rig or in an RV with their little ones. And so that was one of the issues I really went after the police liaisons about was like, you guys are deliberately, the police are deliberately trying to instigate a violent reaction from people because you know, if you make it even a veiled threat that someone's going to come take your kids away, that mm -hmm. will elicit an emotional response from the convoy who has gone out of their way to be peaceful, right? The entire time. So, did, so at that point in time, um, you could tell then that they, but, there was agreement like, yeah, you're right. That's, that, it was that, that wasn't kosher, right? That but wasn't who's, kosher. Who's, whose idea was it? Did that come from Trudeau's office? Oh, I, I, I suspect it was a result of political pressure, yes, but the, the the threats regarding the involvement of child protective services was coming from the Ottawa police chief. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Who there was a switchover? Did you know right. that? Right. The first oh no, two we weeks? know. That's right. The first one left. The first one left, and then the, resigned, the second yeah. one came in. But that, but that the the guy that brought up the child protection services that was the first the first chief, wasn't it? I think it was the second one. Was it the second one? All yeah. right. So, so from your perspective, okay, you knew that the, everybody's playing a game. Um, there's there's an, a certain amount of provoking at that point in time. But when Trudeau took the stage and his, the deputy minister, uh, Chrystia Freeland, took the mm -hmm. stage, mm -hmm. and they decided that they were going to take away and close people, take the money, mm -hmm. and close people's uh, personal bank accounts. Mm -hmm. That happened to you. It did. Yep. And, yep. and what, I mean, what did you think when they made that decision? Cause I, I thought that was shocking at the time. I didn't expect that in Western civilization. You that, know, this that, wasn't a war zone. Th these are people no. demonstrating. No. Um, and so I like, the emergencies act has never been used in Canada since it's, uh, since it replaced the war measures act. And so this was the first time it's ever been used and it was used against 
peaceful protesters who in no, at no point in time presented an immediate threat to the nation. And I so mean, obviously you, I'm so biased, but I've, what happened when when that went down about the bank account and your mm -hmm. and your bank account was frozen? What did you think? What went through your mind? Well, it just it it, it was a real uh, wake up call to how easy it is for them to just switch off your ability to live, right? Like I, because when the bank account was frozen, my my wife contacted. Uh, someone who we know who works for the bank to ask some questions about like, do our automatic payments still get withdrawn? Like we know that we can't access funds and move money around, but will our mortgage still get paid? Do we still get, can we still pay our bills? And the answer was no. Say? The answer was no. So we, they could have, if they had chosen to keep that in effect, you know, you, you could push people to the point of default and, you know, we, a lot of people were coming forward willing to donate to help keep you uh, like r going. But, you know, they, they had that ability to just simply shut your life down. You know, um, both bank accounts, credit cards, everything were halted based on a phone call from it was either OPP or RCMP. The, the document has, has shows both police services. And when I finally did get to speak to the bank the following week, I, I tried to seek information about who called you and authorized the freezing of my bank account. And it like, there was no court order. There was no charges laid against me. I mean, I was arrested, but there was no charges laid against me. And so no criminal charges, no court order. And they just picked up the phone, called the bank, told them to shut down my account and the bank did. And so they wouldn't provide any of that information. You know, I, kind of gave me the old run around about, oh, it's based on the Emergencies Act, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I know that. I want to know who specifically called. And they wouldn't tell me. I said, what unit? What specific unit within the RCMP? And they wouldn't tell me that either. And So did you ever learn who made that phone call? I know who the RCMP officer is that um, uh, drafted the document. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed, I'm probably not allowed to share that information at this point because there's other legal process happening. But when there was a senior um, ranking RCMP officer who testified in front of a, a House of Commons committee, and he, he said in his testimony that people were warned ahead of time. That's a lie. I, I mean, the only warning that was given to people was what Christian Freeland said that uh, bank accounts may be frozen. But the police did not contact me. Not nobody. Nobody well, that's from the OPP, what happens nobody from the RCMP contacted yeah, but Dan, me. Dan, Danny, they're not going to. Okay? No, I know, but he that's, said that's, they did. That's what, that, right? that's what the public has to understand, okay? Mm -hmm. In a totalitarian fascist state or a fascist, a fascist political action, political mm -hmm. decision made in, in, in a democracy, mm -hmm. when it flips the switch, that respect of inform. That warning that, that you're supposed to be given, that doesn't happen. Well, that no, doesn't, I mean, I mean they, they behaved in a very fascist way. Going after people's peaceful protesters' bank accounts mm -hmm. should be, to me, if you're not going to wake up for medical freedom, mm -hmm. you sure as hell need to wake up for economic coercion. Oh, 100%.
And, yep. and that's and and when that happened in Canada, I said to myself that this is you know economic sanctions happens in a war zone, mm -hmm. but not 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 for demonstrations in a democracy. Well, especially peaceful demonstrations. Well, like, a dem especially a peaceful demonstration. This is you know mm -hmm. Canada is not a third world country. America is not a third world country. I mean, mm -hmm. and but but some of the leadership and how people are acting during this entire COVID situation for the last two uh, now you know we're about to two and a half years into this mm -hmm. um, has been shocking. And so you know I appreciate you coming out and, and speaking about this. <clears throat> Pardon me. When that lasted. It was, I think I remember you telling me it was about five days. Because yeah, five or six days, yeah. And was it because can all Canadians were saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I don't want to lose my money. They might come after me. Is, is that what happened across Canada with the people I, who supported the truckers but were not on the ground? Yeah, so what I suspect happened, based on what I've heard from various sources, is like once it became public that, like a number of the truckers and uh, people who donated to the convoy and myself, you know, uh, a, a large number of people had their accounts frozen. Mm -hmm. uh, my, I heard uh, my information is that there was a run on the banks to withdraw as much cash as possible. And so I suspect what happened was the banks panicked and probably pressured Trudeau to back off on the freezing of the accounts. And because I know a number of people, myself included, that as soon as I had access to my funds, I went to my bank and I closed out my account and I moved to a different bank. Like you, that was unacceptable what you did to me and, and people and people in my position. So, I mean, it, there was, I think they probably like, I, I've used the analogy before of like stomping on a rake and then it comes up and smacks you in the face. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what happened to the government when they, when they tried to stomp on Canadians, the, the bank smacked them back in the face because the bank was at risk of collapse. Um, and also let's, the, the second title of the deputy minister of Canada, mm -hmm. uh, Freeland, she's mm -hmm. also the minister of finance. Yeah, that's correct. And she's also a member of the world economic forum. She's on one of their boards. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. That's mm -hmm. correct. And she and, and Justin Trudeau went to the global leadership yeah, the young leaders. Um, the young leaders at yeah. uh, at Davos, uh, like correct. Macron, and like mm -hmm. others who are who are taking some drastic measures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an international team. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just Western Europeans, and uh, you know this this is not this is not a white supremacy group, as they say you know, sometimes. You know, this is this is people from all over the world that go to Davos and are trained in their leadership program. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I have no doubt that there is a global agenda behind exactly what we're seeing. I mean, it's it's just been too many consistencies in the developed world, um, you know, with the whole approach to managing uh, COVID. Right. And and an ever increasing slide towards authoritarianism. So now, uh, uh, because we've only got about, you know, seven more minutes in this interview, um, how do you see things evolving in Canada and what are you doing now? What do you want to do? Um, and, and what impact ha has the convoy had on Canada from your perspective? And, and what kind of impact has this had on your life um, in, in terms of how you view the country you live in? Well, I was ready. I was ready to leave Canada 
with my family. I was really looking at Florida, Texas, Montana, like stronghold states, trying to figure out a way that I could relocate there um, prior to the convoy uh, firing up. And then as soon as I seen the, the momentum and the support from that and my experience, it restored my hope in Canada, right? I, I realized, okay, there's millions of Canadians that are feeling the same way as me, not just the fringe minority as the P prime minister likes to put it. And so I'm, I'm continuing to speak out and advocate for our fundamental rights and freedoms. Um, I'm still uh, a spokesperson for Mounties for Freedom. I'm working with another organization called Taking Back Our Freedoms. And still um, trying to support protests and rallies to the the best of my ability right now, but, you know, trying to also sort out what's going to happen with my personal life and my family, where we're going to eventually settle long-term uh, my next career. Um, I think I'm likely going to get into private investigations and uh, personal security contracting, mm -hmm. but even that's not a hundred percent certain on that, but that's the direction I'm going. But um I feel right now, like as far as the direction of Canada, the convoy was a major um, initiator for a freedom movement throughout Canada and throughout a lot of the world. And I, it gave me hope that not all was lost because that's where I was prior to the convoy. I thought, okay, like I, if this is what Canadians want, I don't belong here anymore. I'm, I feel like this is no longer the country that I grew up loving and wanting to serve. And so I was ready to leave, but the convoy reinvigorated me about how, how of the potential of what Canada could become once again, right? Because we have seen a slow burn incremental degradation towards authoritarianism they are trying to push even more legislation through right now that would make us even more authoritarian um, at the provincial and federal level regarding censorship and even further restrictions on protesting while the entire world is distracted by other global events and mm -hmm. will smith slapping chris rock i think i think a lot of that is planned distraction and but, putin putin versus Zelensky. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a major, you know, I, I'm no geopolitical expert, but that was like a gift to Justin Trudeau, right? It came at the perfect time to take everyone's, to take the global focus off of his dictator like behavior in Ottawa and shift it over into the Ukraine. And I mean, the fact that he stomped all over Canadians fundamental rights and freedoms for two years, and especially during the dismantling of the convoy. And now he's, presenting himself as the champion of democracy in other countries it's it's laughable it's such it's just one more glaring example of the incompetence and hypocrisy of his government what are his polls right now in canada oh i'm not sure i just know that he he's he's lost a tremendous amount of popularity i think the last number i heard was possibly 16 percent mm-hmm mm -hmm. So, but he's formed a coalition with the new Democrat party. So like we're a multi-party system in Canada, right? Not the, not split. Right. And so the new Democrat party has created a coalition with the liberal party, basically within an agreement to prop him, his government up until 2025. 
That's that's what they're publicly stating. I think I believe that that coalition, uh, that alliance already existed uh, beforehand anyway. I mean, if it hadn't been for the NDP, um, the Emergencies Act never would have passed the the House of Commons. And I actually think it was going to be voted down in the Senate, like the the from the what we were seeing in the debate in the Senate, I think the Senate was going to shut the emergency was going to vote down the emergency act, which could have caused a non-confidence in the government. But, um, and I think that's why Trudeau actually shut it down. He, he shut down, he, he, sorry, he, he withdrew the state of emergency or the, the emergency act before the Senate got to finish their vote. And I think that's because he knew that he was going to be defeated at the Senate level. Danny, thank you so much. I want you to come back. I want you to give us updates about what's going on in Canada. <laughs> okay. And, I, th well, and I, I think it's important for people to know that these these uh, geopolitical situations mm -hmm. does take the light off of what is actually happening on provincial, just like we have in the United States mm -hmm. on the state level, pieces of legislation being being trying. They're trying to pass. The governors are trying to pass some draconian laws related mm -hmm. to COVID. And it's even outside of COVID, but taking advantage of the COVID situation. And that's where people need to focus because it's the local level. It's a provincial level for you guys up there uh, as well as the federal. But then in mm -hmm. the United States, we have to tell people that there are, it's not just the federal laws. It's also the state laws. Oh, the same here, yeah. And the county laws, and, and it's, it's you know, the county councils are, are trying to pass all kinds of things at this point in time. But people need to keep their eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. So I hope you'll come back again and join us because what happens in Canada that will have an effect on us down here in the United States. Oh, and, and most definitely vice versa. I mean, we, we always seem to be about six, six months behind the trend of what's happening in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. Danny well, thank Wilford, you. thank you. Thank you so much for having me.